Father. Our Father who knows us, who can be trusted, our Father who is intimately acquainted with us, who is in heaven. You transcend and you supersede just the affairs of this earth. You are much bigger, both in your scope and in your power and in your ability, but also in your wisdom and in your vision. Hallowed be thy name. I'm coming to you not just in one singular facet of your name. You're not just provider. You are all that you say that your name is. And when I come asking for daily bread, I'm coming under the basis of all of your name, not just one aspect of your name that I want you to be for me right now. And then I pray, let your kingdom come. Let your agenda, let your vision, let your reign, let your power, let that be what happens in the earth, just as it's happening in heaven, and let your will be done, the desires that you have. And when I pray that, I bow. When I pray that, I submit. When I pray that, I yield my perspective, my expectation, and I yield my desire. And it's this mutual prayer of invitation that God leads us into to form our hearts and our lives. I'd like to take a look at Matthew chapter six in its entirety here very briefly. Because as we think about the Lord's Prayer, we have to understand that contextually, the Lord's Prayer is actually fit right in the middle of a chapter that fits right in the middle of a series of chapters that we call the Sermon on the Mount. So Matthew chapter five, Matthew chapter six, and Matthew chapter seven are traditionally three chapters that we have titled the Sermon on the Mount. And what is the Sermon on the Mount exactly? The Sermon on the Mount is a series of teachings that Jesus utilizes to introduce the nature of the kingdom of God to the people that he is teaching. We find in the previous chapter in Matthew chapter four that Jesus emerges out of the wilderness, he comes out of the desert and he begins his preaching ministry and his primary message that he's announcing is the kingdom of God is in fact here. Not in its entirety, but it's beginning. And so now he's speaking, we have to understand, he's speaking to a people that have been in existence and they've been in formation and they've had a history for hundreds of thousands of years that have been operating with a certain idea of who God is and how to relate to God. And Jesus is saying, I am changing everything. My advent onto the scene changes everything. The kingdom of God on the scene changes everything and you're gonna have to change with it. And here's what the kingdom of God looks like. And what we find in in summary is that particularly within these three chapters in the Sermon on the Mount, we find that the kingdom of God is absolutely counter-cultural. It's different It's different than the way that we have operated as humans, as sinful beings. It's different. It runs completely different even to the law that the people of Israel were being trained up under. And this is why you'll hear Jesus say many times, you have heard it said, but I say to you. He's revealing to us the heart, the spirit of the law behind everything that he's teaching. And now let's look at Matthew 6. And we're just gonna do a real, just basic outline right here. Matthew 6, verse one through 18. And you can actually follow the headings in your Bible if you want. Matthew 6, one through 18, very simply is titled, Practicing Our Acts 
of righteousness. So in Matthew 6, 1 through 18, Jesus talks about when you give, this is how you should give. Don't announce it. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. When you pray and when you fast, he's talking about these acts of righteousness. And here's what he's getting at. The heart of what Jesus is addressing, when we give and when we pray and when we fast, he's getting at this. What is your motivation for the acts of righteousness that you're practicing. In other words, when you give, are you giving so that you'll receive the praise and the applause and the approval of men and people look at you and go, man, you're so generous or you're such a person of faith or you're so compassionate. Is that why you're giving? Because if that's why you're giving, if that's the motivation, he says, whatever you get from men, that will be all that you get. That will be your reward in its entirety. And the implication is, he says, there are things that I have to give you as a reward that I will withhold. If that is really the reward you're seeking, that's the reward that you'll get. He says this again when he talks about fasting. He says, when you fast, don't walk around somber and your face disfigured. He says, put some oil on your face, brighten up and walk around like it's just any other day and let what you're doing for me be between you and me. And then he says here in prayer, look at verse eight, Matthew 6, 8. Really important verse because he says, when you pray, when you pray, don't keep babbling like the pagans. And here's what he's getting at. Don't make your prayers long. Don't make your prayers loud. And don't make your prayers repetitious for the purpose of being seen and noticed and heard by men. Also, also, this is very, very important. Verse eight says, it says, do not be like them for your father knows what you need. Now, here's the subtle implication. The subtle implication is that just like the pagans, that when we pray from the wrong motivation, that essentially what we're doing is we're trying to manipulate God. That there, there's, there's something here that Jesus is addressing where he's saying that when you operate from a heart of wanting to control and manipulate God, then what happens is your prayers just become long and they become repetitious because really you're trying to get God to do what you want him to do. You're not submitting to what God wants to do. And then he introduces the Lord's Prayer. Look at a couple other segments here of the outline. Look at verse 19 through 24. So in, your, in, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 through 24, very interesting. Right after he talks about how we approach the practices of righteousness, then he talks about where we're storing our treasure. Don't store up your treasure on earth, store up your treasure in heaven, where moth and rust cannot break in and steal and destroy. And this is where we hear that verse. Many of you have probably heard this many times before where Jesus says, he's talking about our heart and he says, where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. And then in verse 24, he says, you can't serve two masters. You'll either love one or you'll hate the other and, and hate the other. You can't serve God and money. So we're talking about material stuff here. We're talking about daily bread. We're talking about essentials. We're talking about provision. Look at the next segment. The next segment here, Jesus closes out Matthew chapter six and he's talking about do not worry. 
Don't worry. And we find this in verse 25 through 34. This is the last segment here of the outline of chapter six. Verse 25 says, do not worry. Do not worry. That's how he opens this. And then he starts talking about, don't worry about what you're gonna eat, don't worry about what you're gonna drink, and don't worry about what you're gonna wear. Those three things. I think it's very fascinating that Jesus isolates the three most basic, fundamental areas of life. What I eat, what I drink, and the way that I clothe myself so I can carry on my business in public. He says, don't worry about those things. And then he contrasts, he says, Take a look at the birds. They don't sow, they don't reap, they don't store in barns, which are great things actually for a finance message. So reap, store in barns. He says, they don't do any of those things and yet the father takes care of them. And then he says, consider the grass, consider the flowers and not even Solomon, one of the richest kings that ever walked the face of the earth was ever adorned like one of these. He says, you're way more valuable than birds and you're way more eternal than flowers. And then he says again, do not worry in verse 31. Second time, don't worry. I'm, I'm trying to help us read the Bible accurately. I'm trying to help us understand where all this fits contextually. And I'm gonna connect the dots again here real quick in a second. And then he says, look at verse 32, which sounds very similar to verse eight, where he says, the pagans run after all these things and yet your father knows that you need them. Remember in verse eight, he says, don't be like the pagans because your father knows what you need even before you ask him. So twice in the same chapter that's set within the context of introducing the ways and the culture of the kingdom, Jesus emphasizes this idea, your father knows. Your father knows what you need. And then he closes out the chapter here with verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God elevate, prioritize, let your focus be upon. It's interesting because this word worry that's now used in verse 34, three times this word worry means to be dominated by. It means to be consumed with. It means to bear up under the pressure of. It means to be anxious. That's what he says here, the word worry. Three times Jesus is saying, guys, in this kingdom, you don't have to worry because your father really knows every single thing that you need. I bring this up as a very simple segue and a very simple transition into a singular thought here. The singular thought very simply is this. I think that we're all at peace with the idea that God really is the source of all things that we need. I th there's an element of us, I think, that maybe wrestled with this at some point in our journey, but we've, we've really settled in on the idea that, yes, God, we recognize that you really are the one who is the source of everything. But when we pray, give us this day, there's actually two implications to that prayer. Number one, it's that you are the one who possesses. You are the one who has the bread. But the other subtle implication is very simply this. You're not only the one who possesses, you're the one who determines. You're not the only one who holds things as the source. You are the sovereign who dictates and decides what I receive and when I receive it and how I receive it and what I don't receive and how much I receive 
When I say, give us this day, I'm not only acknowledging that you're my source, I am saying, God, you are my sovereign. I'd like to talk about that here for a few minutes today. When we pray that you are the one who is the, is the one who decides what my daily bread is, we are learning to see God rightly as our provider. Now I have to be honest, within certain streams of faith, it would be very, very easy to interpret God as my provider, as God is my sugar daddy. Come on, right? So when I say you're my provider, I'm saying essentially those things that I think that I need, those are the things that you should supply. Those things that I deem necessary for life and sustenance and strength and ministry and benefit and betterment. Those are the, I get to determine, you get to provide. That's your job. I'm the decider, you're the provider. You're Jehovah Jireh. You could be Jehovah Jireh all day long. You can provide everything. You're abundant, cat on a thousand hills, but I get to say when, and I get to say how, and I get to say what, and I get to say how much. That is not give us this day our daily bread. That is not an accurate understanding of who God is as provider. I am the provider for my children at this stage of development in their life. And there are things in my limited understanding and in Christy's limited understanding, there are very, very basic things that we understand that they need and left to their own appetites, left to their own wisdom and left to their own understanding. My kids would eat Rice Krispie treats and brownies for breakfast. Yeah, come on, right? And they they would eat fruit roll-ups for lunch a bag of marshmallows, the jumbo kind, by the way, have you seen? They're making marshmallows like this big nowadays. Campfire style, baby, huh? Okay. Every Easter, there'd be a daily diet of peeps. Huh? And for dinner, we would just just top it all off with all 31 flavors at Baskin Robbins. Why not, right? And we'll just make this every day. And for a season, that would be awesome. In their limited understanding and in their limited wisdom, that is what they would choose and they would choose it over and over and over again. Just yesterday, my daughter came and said, and I'm not gonna reveal names here for the sake of podcasts and parents who might hear this, but she said, fill in the blank, at such and such an event, drink five root beers. And she said it like with this, this twinge of jealousy and envy like, why did she get to drink five root beers and I didn't get to drink five root beers? To which I quickly and aptly replied, sweetheart, five root beers will destroy you. <laughs> you were not created for five root beers. One, and on a good day, two. I actually said this. I said, on a special day, you can have two. So then five minutes later, guess what? We're driving in the car. She goes, hey, dad, is today a special day? <laughs> I'll tell you, man, I'll tell you. In the book of common prayers, there is a collect prayer and it reads as such. I thought it was very fitting for today. It says, almighty God, the fountain of all wisdom, you know our necessities before we ask and you know our ignorance in asking. Have compassion on our weakness 
and mercifully give us those things which for our unworthiness we dare not, and for our blindness we cannot ask through the worthiness of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit now and forevermore. I thought that was fitting, and I particularly like the first two lines there. You are the fountain of all wisdom. You know all of our necessities before we ask, and you know how ignorant we are in our asking. And with these two things in view, God, we come to you and we ask you for our daily bread. The prayer, give us this day our daily bread, confronts something deep inside of us. And it's within every human being and it actually began at the fall. And what it confronts is it confronts our independence. And if you will turn with me to Genesis chapter three, just so that we get an understanding of where this came from. Because it, it, it exists within every single person. Give us this day, God, you get the right to determine what I need. Genesis chapter three. And we find right here in the story of the garden, now the serpent, verse one, was more crafty, more deceitful, more cunning than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say that you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Such a trickster. And focusing on what we can't have focusing on the things that God reserves the right to speak into. Now, I want you to think about this. If there were ever a perfect environment, if there were ever a perfect setup, if there were ever a perfect distribution of provision, it was here. Sin did not exist and God gave them free reign of everything in the garden save one tree save one domain of decision-making that God reserved the right to be the authority over. He said, you can, you can explore the outer perimeters of everything that you want. And yet, yet the enemy comes and he focuses on that 1%, that 1% that would cause us to be dissatisfied. That 1% of everything in the garden that we are not given the legal authority to touch. And Satan parlays this into an argument that God is withholding everything from you. And he appeals, he begins to craft an argument. He begins to craft this logic of thinking that leads them into a realm of understanding that says, well, if God is going to withhold, then I do not want to be dependent on him. Let's keep reading here. Verse two, the woman said to the serpent, you may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. Verse four, the rebuttal, you will not die. Serpent said to the woman, for God knows, he knows he knows. Remember today, we're talking about not the fact that God is just the source, but God is the one who knows. He is the one who determines. He's the sovereign. So the enemy says he knows. He knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be just like him. In other words, in other words, you then will be the one who gets to decide and determine what is right and wrong for your life. Are you seeing that? 
Interestingly enough, the enemy doesn't say that when you eat of the fruit, then you will then become the source and you will have the ability and you will have the competency to create. He doesn't say that. I think that there's just an element of living in the material world that the enemy understands that there are certain elements that we absolutely cannot control and he knows that we would figure that out. But what he does is he plays into this idea that you will be the one who can rightly determine. You can decide. You can govern your own life. You can be independent. You can say what. You can say when. You can say how. You can say how much because you are like God, you can be in control. That's what is in every human being. That's inside of us, and that's what the prayer confronts. When we come and when we pray, give us this day our daily bread. We are saying, God, confront the rebellion and the independence and the self-sufficiency that runs in the blood of my sinful veins. Guys, this is the way of the pagans. Now, I want want you to entertain an idea here with me. When Jesus says multiple times in Matthew 6, don't be like the pagans. What is the way of the pagans? Well, pagan nations and pagan followers essentially means that they were godless. They had no room. They had no space in their mind or their hearts for God. They did not live a life that submitted to the lordship and the sovereignty of God. And yet they understood being in the natural material world, they understood that there's a shortage of rain, there's a shortage of water. They, they understood that if, if these things don't take place, my crops won't grow. And if my crops don't grow, then there's gonna be a shortage of food and then the cycle just perpetuates itself. And so what we find is that the way of the pagans is not necessarily discounting the idea that God or some God or some cosmic being or force is the one that provides, the way of the pagans is saying essentially, we will manipulate the gods. We'll manipulate the gods. We will control, we will alter, we will determine what the gods give us. And this reminds me of 1 Corinthians 19 when there's a showdown with Elijah and the pagan prophets of Baal who say we can get God to perform for us. Does this sound eerily similar to the way that we interact with God? In fact, in that story in 1 Kings 19, you'll find that the prophets of Baal, they begin to create a lot of commotion to get their God to do for them what they want him to do. And when he doesn't respond, what do they do? They get louder. And when God doesn't respond for us, what do we do? we get louder. And when God doesn't respond for them, what do they do? They exert more energy. And when God doesn't respond for us, what do we do? We exert more energy. Maybe I need to pray a little bit louder. Maybe I need to pray a little bit longer. Maybe I need to go to another seminar. Maybe I need to soak a little bit longer. Maybe I need to give a little bit more money. Maybe I need to fast a little bit longer. I'll just create some more energy. Because at the soul, at the root of the issue, it's this. God, you are the one who holds the keys to everything, but I'm the one who determines. And if I can just figure out the equation, 
If I can just figure out what it is that I need to do to move you, I can get what I want. This is at the heart of give us this day. Will we relinquish our need to be independent and sovereign and in control and say, God, I'm not gonna babble. I'm not gonna jump through hoops. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna manipulate you. I'm not gonna practice spiritual witchcraft. I'm going to trust that you're a good father. And if you say that you will provide my daily bread, I receive. And I receive not just the brownies and the Rice Krispies and the campfire marshmallows and the 31 flavors. I receive what you determine to be my daily diet. And that includes cauliflower and broccoli and asparagus and Brussels sprouts and peas and all those incredible things that I don't want. But you determine for me. If you're up to me, I'd be eating steak every day. Carne asada. You better believe it, baby. And I wouldn't be here to pastor you very long. This is very this this scenario here in the garden, we don't find this play out just once. We actually find this play out again in Jesus' life and ministry in Matthew 4. And uh, let's take a look at Matthew 4, verses 1 through 4 on the screen. And, and I'd just like to draw a couple of connections right here as, as I just wrap this up. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. I just, I want to give attention there because I'm going to come back to it. But I want you to say he was hungry. He was hungry. Perhaps, perhaps... Perhaps one of the most prominent and pronounced times in his entire life as a human that he experienced the pangs of hunger that, that revealed to him his need, all right? And when we experience need, if we're honest, when we experience need, what is our natural response to that need? It's to get it done. It's to exercise our power. It's to exercise our ability to do something about the situation. And that could be healing, and that could be relationships, and that could be job, and that could be decisions, and that could be finance, and that could be on and on and on. It goes very necessary essentials of life. And look at what the enemy does. Verse three. So the tempter came and he said, if you really are the son of God, if you are who you say that you are, prove it, prove it. This is the same conversation that happened in the garden, spun a little bit different in a little slightly different context. But it's in the desert, it's in the wilderness when resources are scarce, when, when pressure is applied. It's in those moments that we're most tempted to become our own provider of daily bread. It's in those moments when we're tempted to become our own source and to become our own sovereign. And here's what the enemy was saying. Hey, if you really are who that you, you say that you are, if you really are a child of God, if you're really a man of faith, uh-oh. If you're really a man of faith, and by the way, faith isn't denying or ignoring the reality of the challenges. If you got a physical situation, 
Acknowledge the fact that you got a physical situation at the moment. I promise you, you're not gonna get cursed or hexed or vexed because you've acknowledged that you've got a physical situation. But this is what the enemy's trying to do. He's trying to get us into these performance games, these, these, these mind games of trickery. If you really are a man of faith, then make this situation do what you want this situation to do. Turn it. Work a miracle, use your faith, use your power, tap into your ability to determine what is right and what is wrong. And look what Jesus says. Jesus says, man does not live on this kind of bread alone. Man does not live on healing alone. Man does not live on supernatural provision and abundant finances alone. Man does not live on prophetic words alone. Man does not live on the distribution of gifts alone. Man does not live on charismatic preachings and revelations alone. We we can fill in the blanks with all of these things that we want. Man lives on obedience to the one who's the sovereign. That's what man lives. That is the daily bread. The daily bread is whatever the father says to do. That's the daily bread. And if he says, yes, you've got an important, powerful, revelatory gift, but I'm gonna pull you away and set you in silence for 30 years, that's daily bread. That's my daily bread. And if I'm contending and believing and praying and prophesying and announcing and declaring for believing for faith and for healing, and God says, you will be healed, but now what I want you to do is trust that in the secret, quiet, dark hours of the pain that you're, that you're, that you're contending for the fullness of the manifestation of that healing, receive daily bread and be at peace. Stop striving. Stop trying to become like God. Guys, listen, there is a massive tension I recognize between the authority and the dominion of the believer and submission to the sovereignty of God. There is a tension. And we have to acknowledge that that tension exists. And what scares me is anytime we fall on either side of that tension where we just say, oh, God's gonna do what he wants to do anyways, no, we're gonna tip. Or when we say, I can, I can become my source and my sovereign. And if I'll just, if I'll just, 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 just do a little bit more. If I just do another dance for the gods of Baal, rain will come. And if we're really honest, many of us worship God like pagan Baal worshipers. Faith is a quiet resolve and surrender to the goodness of the character and the nature of God. And it is a quiet surrender to what God determines is right for us. Look at Hebrews chapter five, verse seven through nine. Hebrews five, verse seven says, during the days of Jesus's life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. God, God, God in a body, poured his soul out before God the Father. And he was heard, not because of his powerful faith, not because he said it just right, not because he was loud, not because he was perseverant. He was, he was heard because of his reverent submission and quiet trust that God the Father is who he says that he is. 
His reverent submission, that's what it says. Look at verse eight. And although he was a son, he was a son. Let me say, you are a son. You are a daughter. You don't have to manipulate God the Father. Although he was a son, he learned obedience. He learned it. He learned it. You know how he learned it? There's a number of ways, but there's two prominent ways. He learned it when he was in the desert and he could have turned stones into bread. And he chose to submit to the daily bread of the Father. He learned it when he chose not to be his own sovereign. He learned it when he chose not to take shortcuts to the process. Could Jesus have turned stones to bread? So that's not the issue. That's not the issue. Whether or not you can get massive amounts of abundance to come to your life is not the issue. Whether or not you can pray the prayer of faith and be completely self-sufficient again physically, that's not the issue. That's not the issue. The issue is obedience to the daily bread and the process of the Father. The issue is yes, Lord. The issue is I invite you to change my expectations. I invite you to recalibrate my desires. That is the issue. And that is what the man, Christ Jesus, who had eternal, infinite amounts of power available, that is what he chose. In closing, Matthew 6, 8, I'm just gonna just read this verse one more time. I think it's just so appropriate. Matthew 6, 8, your father knows what you need. Your father knows what you need. He knows what you need. He knows, he knows. He knows exactly what you need. And, and listen, I, 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 wanna, I wanna prophetically address, and I also wanna pastorally submit the same idea. You do not know what you need. You don't. You don't. And it's the trickery and the deception of the enemy and it's the arrogance and the rebellion and the self-sufficiency of man that says, I reject that, I do know it. No, you don't know what you need. I don't know what I need. Romans 8 says it like this. It says that we do not know how to pray as we ought. And if you don't know what to pray for, you don't know what you need. You don't. Our understanding of what we need is temporal. God's understanding of what we need is eternal. Our understanding of what we need is material. God's understanding of what we need is comprehensive and spiritual. Our understanding of what we need is immediate. Give this to me now. God's understanding of what we need encompasses generations. Our understanding of what we need is what we know. God's understanding of what we need is what we don't know. You don't know what you need. You don't know what your daily bread is. We're like the little kid who, given to our own devices, would choose sweets and carbs all day, every day. That is us. That is us. But this is what Jesus says. He says, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you must become like a child. 
Because even though that's our natural inclination, there is government in my life and there's government in the life of my kids because when they say, I wanna do this and this, I say, nope, you don't get your dessert until you finish your dinner. That's us, that's us. Are you guys with me on this? That's us. We don't know what we need. And when we say, God, you are the God of my life, you are the brake on this engine, you are the one that I give the right to say no to me. Who has the right to say no to you? Who has the right? Who is the one? Just internalize that. Who is the one that says, I know that you could fill in the blank, but I am putting a brake on you. I am putting government on you. I'm saying no to you. Who's the one that you give permission to say no to you? Faith is not a reckless life devoid of boundaries. Our terms of abundance, if we were really honest on a visceral level, really means we get to determine, we get to decide, we are the sovereign and we get to live life without limitations. But God is the enforcer of limitations because he's God and he's the one who decides. We see this best in the garden when Jesus says, Father, three times, take this cup from me, but not what I will. Your daily bread, your will be done. I'm gonna give an official dismissal for anyone who needs to leave at this time. I respect that. For those who would like to stay and participate at the table of the Lord with us, I'd like to invite you to stay as well. There is something supernatural that happens in Jesus being formed in our lives when we come to the table of the Lord, a table that he has prepared for us where he says, I am the bread of life. And unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, unless you give yourself over, give your sufficiency, give your sovereignty to me and trust. I'm just gonna be really honest with you. I went to bed last night and I confronted a very, 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 very real fear. And here's the real fear. And I think that if all all heads were bowed and eyes were closed, maybe there's a part of us that would acknowledge this. There's a part of us that's really afraid to say, God, I give you absolute control to determine anything and everything for my life. There's something inside of us that's afraid of that. And here's a question that we need to ask. Why? Why? With zero condemnation, why am I afraid Why am I so frightened to allow you to be the sovereign, to be the one who decides? Because at the core of it, we are afraid he will choose something we don't want and we don't like. Who likes Brussels sprouts? No one. Okay, bless you. I I can find probably something, but who likes that? Who likes that? Who likes the quiet, who likes the mundane, who likes the subversive, who likes delayed, who loves delayed gratification? No one in their flesh. But when we say, God, you really know what's best. We can say, give us this day our daily bread and trust two things. 
We can trust that what he's giving us is exactly what we need. And we can also trust that over time, as we walk with him, what he gives us, we will learn, we'll learn to love because he's a good father. Let's stand to our feet this morning, if we would. Thank you, Matt. Approach the table of the Lord with humility, with honesty, with reverence and dependence. Antioch Church, thank you for, thank you for your heart and thank you for your, just your respect and your honor of the word of the Lord and for determining to respond to that. I'm gonna invite you to please stand with me in respect to the person of Jesus and the work of the cross and the resurrection. It's a great, It's a great feeling to know that what Jesus is doing here does not rest on a great preacher or great teaching. It rests on the finished work of Jesus. And as we come to the table of the Lord today, we come, we come yielding our hearts and we come inviting him to do a death blow to the stronghold and the stranglehold of control and independence that runs in the sin nature of our lives. We come to the table and we say, Jesus, you are the bread of life. You are my complete sustenance. You're my sovereign and you're my source. We come to the table of the Lord saying, God, you are able to meet my need and you are willing, but we also say you are the one who determines how you meet my need. And we take of this bread today, the bread, the body of Jesus. And we say, Jesus, you're our sustenance. You're our supply and you're our source. Let us take of the bread together. And as we hold the cup before us, I'm going to pray again the collect in the common book of prayers that says, Almighty God, the fountain of all wisdom, you know our necessities before we ask, and you are well acquainted with our ignorance and asking. So we ask you today to have compassion on our weakness and mercifully give us those things through the worthiness of your son, Jesus, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Teach us to gratefully and to graciously receive what you determine to be our daily bread. In the name of the Lord Jesus, let's take the cup.